This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, please think of joining us. Thank you. Redwood Community Radio comes in part from the Security Store Incorporated in the Meadows Business Park in Redway, featuring watershed dry bags and pelican cases in many sizes. Both have lifetime warranties and have been tested over time in Humboldt County. The Security Store has solutions for all security needs and is open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. They can be reached at 923-2363. It is 7 o'clock, 85 degrees outside our Redway Studios. We are Redwood Community Radio, KMUD Garberville, KMUE Eureka Arcata, KLAI Laytonville, K258BQ Shelter Cove, and on the web at kmud.org. And the views and opinions expressed throughout the broadcast day are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of this station, its staff, or underwriters. Time will be made available for other viewpoints. Thank you for joining us. And came with thanks Jessica Baker of Jade Dragon Acupuncture for her support of Redwood Community Radio. Practicing traditional Chinese medicine, Jessica treats conditions ranging from psoriasis to post-traumatic stress. Located at 607 F Street in Arcata, Jade Dragon Acupuncture can be reached at 822-4300 or check her out online at jadedragonacupuncture.com. And here comes Ask Your Herb Doctor. Welcome to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray, and for those of you who perhaps have never listened to the show which runs every third Friday of the month from 7 to 8 p.m., uh, we're both licensed medical herbalists who trained in England and graduated there with a degree in herbal medicine. We run a clinic in Garberville where we consult with clients about a wide range of conditions, and we manufacture all our own certified organic herb extracts, which are either grown on our CCUF certified herb farm or which are sourced from other USA-certified organic suppliers. So as per usual, uh, I've still got the same intro, but Sarah is not joining me today. Um, so you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD Garble 91.1 FM, and from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions either related or unrelated to this month's subject of environmental er- enrichment. Amongst other things, we're going to co- cover a few other topics of interest as well as uh, look at a couple of recent articles that have caused a bit of a stir and that we are going to refute for the bad science they contain. Uh, the number you, if you live in the area, is 923-3911. So from 7.30 to 8 o'clock onwards, callers are very welcome to call in with any questions about the show's content, either this month's or any previous content they might have questions about. And if you live outside the area, there's a toll-free number. It's 1-800-KMUD-RAD, which is 1-800-568-3723.
And we can also be reached toll-free on one eight 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 wbm herb for further questions during normal business hours, Monday through Friday. So, once again, I'm very welcome to introduce a, a seemingly permanent fixture to the show, thankfully, uh, for his wisdom. Now, Dr. Pete, thank you for joining us. Yeah, hi. Okay, um, I guess, as always, um, I'd like you just to give an introduction of your academic background for perhaps those people who've uh, just tuned into the show and have never heard you before. Um, in, in the um, 60s, uh, I taught uh, biology and literature and painting and various things, but then I went to a graduate school in 1968 to 72 studying uh, oh biochemistry, reproductive aging, physiology in general. And uh, since then, I've been uh, continuing some of the same projects that I started back in the late 60s. Okay, and uh, you're fairly fairly prolific, uh, I think that's the right word, in terms of producing um, uh, newsletters that are, uh, can be accessed by people uh, wanting to make a subscription to your newsletters uh, and also your pretty constant and avid researcher of uh, topics uh, both old and new uh, finding out <laughs> the truth if you like about where the science is coming from and that leads me on to uh, a couple of articles I wanted uh, to discuss or wanted you to discuss the uh, bad science portion of the articles because one of them caused, caused a fair amount of stir in as much as the uh, topics that we've talked about in the past, things like salt uh, being good for you and sugar being good for you and saturated fats being good for you. The, the saturated fat seems to be working its way to the surface now with the uh, medical establishment seemingly doing a U-turn on the polyunsaturates, saying that the polyunsaturates are bad for you now, actually the saturated fats are good for you. Um, and hopefully in time here, the same thing will happen with sugar. Um, but recently there's been an article that was published that uh, seemed to shoot down the uh, benefits of sugar, and it was done with mice, and they, um, they were using two different groups of mice. Uh, the, the, bottom line, <laughs> the bottom line with the article uh, was that um, it was calling, calling sugar poisonous, and uh, uh, was saying that it had the same kind of effects uh, in terms of the results as when they tested mouse groups that were inbred uh, and that um, the same negative effects were present in the sugar group as were in the mouse group that were inbred in terms of their ability to control territory and dominate uh, others uh, as signs of their healthiness and their ability to find the best place to sleep and uh, mate with the best uh, best females. So... Uh, you, you're familiar with that study done in Utah, the university in Utah, that said that sugar was uh, bad for the mice and it caused an early death and all sorts of things. Uh, yeah, it just came out a couple of days ago, uh, and people have been contacting me about it because it uh, basically says that the amount of uh, sugar, fructose, and sucrose uh, in three sweetened drinks that Americans, a large part of the population, average that many per day, mm -hmm. that that amount uh, given to mice causes extremely high mortality, uh, next best thing to rat poison for uh, the high rate of mortality uh, in a period of, uh, I think it was 32 weeks or 36 weeks, 35% right. uh, uh, of the sugar-reared uh, females died, and only 17% of the uh, 
so-called stock diet. <laughs> Uh, so that, that's, that sounds bad on the face of it, doesn't it? You can explain uh, the science behind their findings. Uh, yeah, twice, twice as many uh, deaths in this fairly moderate period of time uh, just from drinking the equivalent of three sodas. And uh, that, that was so weird and extreme, I looked up uh, what that group had been doing before this study, and they were working on, uh, as you mentioned, inbreeding. And uh, they found that uh, the um, inbred mice had a high mortality, and uh, aggression was uh, designed into their living arrangement uh, so that uh, they thought of it as uh, accelerated evolution, apparently, in which the survival of the meanest would uh, be evident in a very short time. And it happened that uh, in the uh, several years ago, but just a year or two before, they switched from their uh, inbreeding studies to the sugar study. Uh, there were three or four papers published uh, showing that uh, a diet enriched in starch and polyunsaturated fats uh, powerfully increased aggression and mouse killing in in rats uh, so uh, the uh, connection between starch polyunsaturated fats and and aggression was uh, clearly established and they had an environmental setup that uh, allowed aggression to uh, kill off part of the population fairly quickly and uh, so i don't think it was um, uh, just an objective study of the effect of sugar because the so-called stock uh, diet uh, consisting of some grains and soy uh, protein or soy mm -hmm. flour had uh, cornstarch added 25% cornstarch so the um, the grains contained the polyunsaturated fats right. and uh, it, it was a, a model of the aggression promoting diet, but they didn't mention that in their their publicity about uh, the fact that the so-called normal uh, diet uh, allowed a higher survival in the females uh, than the uh, sugar-rearing diet with uh, the equivalent of three sodas per day. Uh, so what they did was uh, create uh, an arrangement in which uh, feeding uh, the uh, one group of animals so that they became aggressive. Uh, the setup was such that uh, they could uh, take over the food supply, the nesting arrangement, and uh, uh, generally uh, bully mm -hmm. the, uh, the weaker animals until they died. So that extremely high mortality uh, is uh, not produced by a drinking three sodas a day it would be if you had to associate <clears throat> the uh, sugar reared population with the population living on on starch and polyunsaturated fats would uh, endanger the passive people <laughs> excellent okay good so just uh, fairly bad science unfortunately turned into a mainstream uh, article um, it was 
There's a buzz. The buzz has just gone. Okay, so it was. You hear that? Okay, there's a. Okay, all right. Can you hear any buzzing on the line? How's your How's this phone line to you, Doctor Pete? Uh, so far, it's perfect. Good. Okay, I just heard the buzz. Maybe it was just on my end. All right. So, uh, unfortunately, as an, another example of some skewed science to produce results in the direction that was favourable to the outcome, which was that sugar was bad for you, when actually it was not modelled correctly in the uh, uh, the actual findings weren't uh, weren't realistic. Okay. So that's that's the first thing, and then. There was another article uh, from a study done in Italy um, which referenced the intake of uh, T4, specifically Synthroid, which is a fairly common prescription for thyroid uh, deficiency, um, and a link between Synthroid use and lung cancer. So that caused, again, a little bit of a stir given that uh, quite a few people were using Synthroid um, for low thyroid function. Um, in terms of Synthroid's use and its activity as a compound, what did, what did you find about that study that was uh, erroneous? Uh, there were animal studies uh, with lung cancer specifically that are very relevant to that, and they found that T3, uh, the active thyroid hormone, uh, inhibited the growth of, of the cancer cells but that T4 uh, uh, increased their growth and uh, increased the uh, metastatic ability of them. Uh, And uh, that's similar to uh, some studies that started about 30 years ago, published in JAMA. Uh, There was a study in, uh, I think it was uh, the late 80s, comparing, uh, studying a a group of five women who had uh, been treated for hypothyroidism with T4 only, such as Synthroid, Mm -hmm. uh, comparing them to uh, a a group of women who weren't given uh, any thyroid supplement. So they had chosen a group of hypothyroid women and uh, reported that uh, the ones who... uh, received the T4 or Synthroid had a higher rate of osteoporosis. But uh, since uh, low thyroid is compensated by uh, high cortisone and high uh, prolactin and other stress hormones, which cause uh, bone problems, including osteoporosis, right. uh, what they were doing was looking at a a population with the uh, deficient thyroid um, problem treated in, insufficiently with something like 100 micrograms of, of uh, T4. And it has been known for decades that women uh, are, are much less able to convert T4 or Synthroid into the active hormone. So it's especially inappropriate for uh, treating women with hypothyroidism to give them only T4. Right. Okay, from a, from a perspective of being um, stimulant to uh, turn up oxidative stress in terms of T4's activity, um, I don't think, you're, you're not really an advocate of just using T4 anyway in, in terms of uh, its physiological uh, effect and its usefulness. I mean, in general, I uh, both 
use of the thyroid hormones, if you can convert the thyroxin into T3, right. uh, they both uh, can have a very important antioxidative damage function okay. uh, by increasing the rate of uh, useful oxidation. Uh, they keep electrons from escaping uh, from the electron transport chain in the mitochondrion and uh, uh, prevent the random uh, oxidative damage. Uh, uh, just uncoupling uh, the uh, production of energy, so you're wasting oxygen and fuel uh, with with some drugs, for example, that used to be used for uh, weight loss, which uh, activated the uh, oxidation the way thyroid does, okay. but without producing useful energy. Right. Even that kind of uncoupling uh, is known to reduce oxidative damage. Uh, so when you're finding increased oxidative uh, breakdown products, when you give T4, uh, it shows that you're not activating uh, oxidative metabolism the way thyroid normally does. Uh, you're interfering in some way with the respiratory system. Okay. Okay, well, thank you for that. It's, uh those two articles, like I say, caused a bit of a stir, but obviously they're not in the right context. Um, okay, so you're listening to Ask Your Web Doctor on KMUD, KMUD Garberville, 91.1 FM. Uh, from 7.30 to the end of the show at 8 o'clock, <coughs> callers are invited to come in with any questions they have, either about tonight's subject or previous subjects. The number, if you live in the area, is 923-3911. And if you live outside the area, there's a 1-800, beg your pardon, a, yeah, 1-800-568. 3723 number 1800 KMUD rad. Okay, well let's move on to the main topic of tonight. The the subject of environmental enrichment in terms of uh, negating the effects, if you like, or staving off the effects of brain brain atrophy, uh, and also um, the reference to Alzheimer's. um, Says seeing seeing that this enrichment now is proposed as a a new approach, if you like, for the treatment of Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative disease where lab findings show an association between Alzheimer's and increased levels of destructive inflammatory mediators like nitric oxide and cortisol, uh, as well as prostaglandins. What's, uh, what do you know about the, uh, the, this, this topic of environmental enrichment and, and, and in its perspective to uh, uh, energy and um, anti-inflammation? observation that uh, Alzheimer's people have um, uh, drastically uh, reduced uh, living uh, variety. Uh, They tend not to uh, socialize uh, as much as people who are resistant to Alzheimer's. Uh, That started me thinking about the general uh, range of stimulation and animal studies um, beyond simple uh, more or less voluntary isolation that people, uh, old people often uh, develop the habit of just staying at home and watching television or something. Uh, Beyond that, uh, animal studies did various uh, things, isolation at different ages, uh, separating uh, the baby uh, animals from their mothers right after weaning, um, uh, uh, giving them solitary confinement until they're 
uh, middle-aged and uh, even uh, tightening up their environment to the point of uh, holding them so they, they can't do anything at all. Uh, there's a gradient uh, all the way from uh, living in a playground, basically, uh, with slides and wheels and uh, various colored objects, balls to push around and so on, uh, all the way down to uh, being rolled up in a, a blanket uh, so you can't move. Uh, but you see the same things happening. The, uh, the worse the stress is, uh, the uh, smaller the brain gets. Uh, uh, depression is known to uh, increase cortisol and cause atrophy of all of the tissues, and that includes the brain. Uh, so they see that after about three years of just being uh, psychologically depressed, uh, people show a smaller uh, re a reduction of the brain volume. And animal studies starting in the 1960s uh, at uh, University of California, Berkeley, uh, they first found that uh, animals given stimulation, a big playground uh, to uh, roam in uh, during when they weren't eating and sleeping, uh, they found that they learned better, uh, uh, could solve problems better. And so they examined their brains to see what was happening, and they found that uh, the enzyme uh, cholinesterase was increased in proportion to uh, how much they were stimulated and how well they learned. And uh, they kept that study going on generation after generation and found that uh, it not only increased this enzyme that destroys uh, acetylcholine, uh, it involved uh, enlargement of the whole brain, especially the cortex. And uh, each generation, uh, both the enzyme increased and the brain got larger. Wow. Um, but, uh, so it's passed on. Uh, yeah, uh, in a, a physiological sort of inheritance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is getting some study now in the last 10 years. But at the time, they were just interested in uh, the fact that, that the environment could cause these uh, major biological changes, especially in the brain. But uh, a lot of people said, well, if you're destroying acetylcholine at a higher rate and the brain gets bigger, that must mean you have more activity of the cholinergic nerves making acetylcholine. But that isn't what they found. They found that the enzyme that destroys it was increased as the brain got bigger. And... Uh, uh, the uh, that kind of uh, reasoning without facts uh, shifted over to uh, thinking about the deterioration of of the brain in Alzheimer's disease, and uh, they uh, saw that there was uh, less uh, tissue in parts of the brain, especially in the cholinergic part. Uh, and no one su suggested that maybe uh, overexposure to acetylcholine might have something to do with why the nerves atrophied. 
because uh, the uh, various stress signals uh, increase the various factors that uh, cause brain shrinkage. Uh, so they uh, proposed poisoning the enzyme cholinesterase, mm -hmm. which was associated in the animal studies with increased intelligence, memory, and brain growth. Uh, they proposed doing just the opposite, poisoning that enzyme to increase the amount of acetylcholine in the brain. And uh, the first drug that was uh, proposed and used according to that theory was uh, tacrine was, was the name of the chemical. And uh, several studies by the late 90s, they were seeing that it did absolutely nothing for the Alzheimer's dementia, but it did cause a terrifically high incidence of liver disease. Wow. So um, in the 70s, it happened that uh, Parkinson's uh, disease was, they were looking around for other things than L-DOPA to treat it with because that didn't uh, work too well. And uh, uh, some uh, virus uh, treatment investigations had found that uh, a derivative of camphor or a, a similar compound uh, that was used to cure uh, herpes and, and influenza uh, also had nerve protective action. And they thought, why not use this uh, amandadine or adamantane amine uh, to treat Parkinson's disease? And uh, they found that it did uh, benefit Parkinson's disease, uh, which involved, among other things, an excess of acetylcholine. Okay. And uh, this amandadine was known right from the um, time of the virus uh, studies, it was known to uh, be an anticholinergic drug, and uh, it, it was uh, recognized as an anticholinergic when it was being used to improve Parkinson's patients. But uh, the Alzheimer's people, uh, seeing the success with Parkinson's disease, wanted to try it uh, in their population, but since they were already treating with something that increased the cholinergic acetylcholine, uh, they couldn't very well switch right over to something absolutely opposite to inhibit the cholinergic system. So they suddenly discovered that as well as being anticholinergic, amandadine and the very similar memantine uh, they found that they also inhibit the excitotoxins, the glutamate aspartate excitatory system. Okay. So suddenly, the, this anticholinergic drug became an anti-excitatory drug and was fit to be used in Alzheimer's patients huh. uh, in combination with tacrine or the galantamine or other uh, drugs to poison the enzyme which this new drug was activating. Wow. <laughs> do, do you know, um, are, are, these, are these two compounds you mentioned, um, 
Uh, Tacrine and galantamine? Or, uh, well, uh, amantadine. Oh, mm-hmm. And, and, and mementamine. Are, are they still... Are they still prescribable uh, drugs, or are they? Oh yeah, memantine I think is is now a standard Alzheimer's treatment, along with whatever uh, toxin uh, of the uh, uh, of the cholinesterase. Okay, so, so so this 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 was because uh, I was always I mean I, in terms of my physiology studying herbal medicine, I was always taught that um, acetylcholine was a very important neurotransmitter and it was mopped up in a synaptic 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 excuse me cleft by acetylcholinesterase and that prevented any overstimulation firing so in for what you were just discussing right now we're talking about a kind of excess situation where there's an excess um, yeah um, in uh, inescapable stress right uh, right there you go. The stress hormones, rather than pushing higher and higher on the cortisol and uh, uh, adrenaline uh, direction to excite things, run the heart at a faster rate, uh, the, the uh, body shifts when it sees futility, inability to escape. Uh, it can simply switch gears and turn off that system and turn on the acetylcholine cholinergic system. Hmm. And the confinement, inescapable stress, which is the extreme of isolation, the extreme opposite from enriched environment, uh, this turns on the the, uh, cholinergic dominant system which lowers blood sugar and, uh, in consequence, uh, lowering the blood sugar um, activates histamine release. Uh, some of the acetylcholine uh, nerves, such as the vagus nerve, uh, amplify their influence by releasing histamine, which uh, is it's very similar in its effects to acetylcholine. So you can think of this kind of... Uh, inescapable stress as turning on uh, the histamine uh, type of cholinergic reaction. So th- this, this is really a kind of death situation. This would be going towards death and away from life. Um, yeah. Biologically. Uh, uh, in uh, uh, the learned helplessness uh, experiments of the 60s, uh, Martin Seligman is the person who made that famous. He's now doing military research. <laughs> Whoops. But, uh, okay. He... Uh, found that if you uh, almost drowned a rat but saved it, uh, even the rats that saw it being saved would uh, swim on for days <laughs> before they drowned. Uh, and if you put the, the saved rat back in, the experience of being saved would would cause it to swim wow. much longer than <laughs> uh-huh. the average rat which that, might give up after a day. That sounds but, like the seed of hope to me. Yeah, but <laughs> if if you uh, simply held the rat in your hand until it got the idea that it was powerless, uh-huh. one experience of being unable to escape, you would drop it in the water and it would wow. basically drown wow. in 30 minutes. Wow, wow. 
far out. Let, let's go ahead. And, the, the state of the heart they found was in a turned off state, basically a, a cholinergic uh, anti mobilization wow. energy state. Wow. We do have a couple of callers, Oxford. Thanks for that explanation. That's uh, pretty profound. So let's take this first. Let's take the first caller. You're on the air. Is that me, please? Yeah, you're on the air. And where are you calling from? From Oregon House, California, which is close to Nevada City. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, the first question is has to do with uh, toe fungus, Dr. Peach. You mentioned in the past that sulfur was good for fungus, and I was just wondering if uh, if it would work with toe fungus, and if I should use some DMSO to get it in there. And the second was, you're, I was wondering about your thoughts on irradiation of food. Uh, there's a 10% sulfur soap sold at drugstores. Uh, they they might not stock it on the shelf because it's too cheap, but it works very well for athlete's foot anywhere on the body. This is a bit uh, deeper than athlete's foot. It's actually in the nail bed. Uh, yeah, w once it gets into the nail, uh, uh, it's very hard to get anything in there, but uh, uh, it's possible that DMSO would help it penetrate through through the nail. But okay. the, the fungus actually lives right inside the thick nail material. I have been using a Dremel to to thin it out uh, as much as I can bear, but uh, I, I'll try that too. So about irradiate irradiation of food, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, yeah, it's been known for a long time that. Uh, it uh, breaks down all of the uh, fragile, easily oxidized nutrients, changes some of the amino acids, uh, turns tryptophan into some toxins. Uh, the um, advocates of it, the radiation waste disposal industry, uh, it's a good way to get rid of radioactive waste to put it into factories. But uh, uh, they uh, do studies and claim that it almost doesn't change the food at all. Right. It seems like the uh, the idea behind it, in part at least, is that they could drop supposedly drop their sanitation standards to zero and then rely on their patient to kill bacteria. Right. Yeah, yeah, but it, it does it, uh, it changes the the flavor fairly drastically. It, it gives it a rancid flavor almost instantly. Great. But the public gets accustomed to uh, degraded food. <laughs> so, yep. Okay, well, thanks very much. Thank you for that call, caller. Okay, do we have any other? Yeah, Michael, let's take the next caller, please. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm calling from the Salmon Creek Watershed, and I got a question about kava uh, that, you know, supposedly the most powerful anxiolytic there is. Um, and all of this, are you, am I on air? Hello? Yeah, you're on the air. I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. And all of the studies done, I, I went to an herb school in the eastern part of the country, and the, you know, like it was my teacher's favorite herb also, and it's something that I use chronically, or I guess, uh, yeah, anyways, and, uh, the thing that I'm curious about is, like, I've heard that a lot of the studies done that say that it has liver damage were done on, like, you know, like one of those studies where they gave us mm -hmm. the above-ground parts instead of just the below-ground parts, and 
I'm curious about your thoughts and opinions on that, mm. and if you know anything about that study. Yeah, I do. Um, the, uh, the the parts that are used anyway are the roots, and the study that uh, showed this, another good example of skewed science, um, showed the uh, hepatotoxic effects of kava were actually done with a hexane extract of um, kava kava, um, and actually the hexane was probably more carcinogenic than anything else. Um, in terms of its use in Fiji, uh, and uh, parts of uh, tropical Philippines um, where they grow kava and use kava in Hawaii to, you know, ceremoniously. There's no, there's no real recorded incidence of any liver toxic effects of it. So uh, you would think, I know that's probably an aqueous uh, extract, so they, I don't think they use uh, ethanol to extract it, which it is typically uh, extracted in a... Uh, 45% or 60% ethanol. You can definitely make, I've definitely made fresh kava tincture with 95%. Yeah. Okay, and yeah. It, and it works great. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that was that was the main bit of science that came out was with a hexane extract, and I believe it was to animals. It was in an animal study, so I think it was a rat or mouse study uh, that showed liver damage, and the liver damage almost exclusively was uh, down to the hexane. Well, do you see any long-term negative effects of using kava tonically? Um, I can't say that I've witnessed any long-term uh, effects myself. Uh, I know a lot of people use it for skeletal muscle uh, relaxation. That's its main indication is to is to relax skeletal muscle, which is why it's termed an anxiolytic. Um, yeah, I, I think ceremoniously when it's used, it's probably ingested in large amounts, and so uh, I think it does have a fairly profound uh, relaxant activity. Uh, if you were to use Carva Carva in a, uh, quote, therapeutic uh, sense, the dose would probably be nowhere near as much and you'd probably experience some uh, general uh, anxiolytic action but not, not as profound, perhaps, as you would if you were in a carver ceremony. Totally. I feel like the way it makes your mouth tingle, it makes your whole mm-hmm. mind and body tingle, too. Uh-huh. That's yeah. how it works. Yeah, that's the hallmark of carver. Well, thanks for your input. Yeah, you're very welcome. Have a good one. Yeah, Bye. thank you for calling. Okay, we have another caller on the line. Let's take the next caller. Hello? Hi, you're on the air. Yes, I want to ask something in regard to the thyroid. Um, now, I'm. my situation is my thyroid is a bit low, um, and uh, they have me on 88 micrograms of something I think they call levoxine. Le- yeah, levothyroxine. Okay, is that yeah. the same as the Synthroid? Yeah, it's T4. Okay, it's T4. All right, now, yeah, sometimes I get the three and the four mixed up. Um, and I asked the doctor, the endocrinologist, um, do I need to take the T3 as well as the T4? And he said that we convert T4 into T3 automatically. Yeah, well... Is that true? Do we do that? <laughs> well, uh, well, automatically? Uh, uh, the reason women uh, have five to ten times the number of uh, thyroid problems of all sorts that men do is that uh, their liver is uh, relatively unable to uh, convert T4 to the active T3 hormone efficiently. Uh, In the 1940s, when T4 was uh, synthesized and brought out as a product, it was tested on male medical students, and it worked in them uh, just the same as uh, armor thyroid extract, but they didn't bother testing it on a female population, which... Well, I've been having tests, uh, you know, fairly regularly to see uh, 
how it's doing, and they keep telling me that my thyroid is now normal. Uh, well, the um, old uh, normal uh, concentration in the blood of T4 and T3, uh, when the gland was producing it and the liver was activating it, or when a person was using Armour Thyroid as a supplement, uh, the uh, Well, I'm not ratio... using that. So, I mean, is this working for me, or is there a reason for me to take the Armour instead, or what? Uh, well, if you have any symptoms of hypothyroidism remaining, uh, then that would mean that your liver isn't activating the T4. Well, when they take the, when they do the blood test and they say that my my uh, thyroid is at a normal level, that's is it? Well, I mean, uh, they they changed the normal uh, level uh, previous to the uh, use of pure thyroxine. Uh, there was a very a slight difference, uh, like a 4 to 1 to, or 10 to 1 ratio of thyroxine to T3 in the blood, but now they consider 50 to 1 to be normal. And, uh, so you're saying that test, the blood test isn't reliable for me to know? Uh, the, the blood test has been standardized on a population of people who have been uh, using only thyroxine rather than the a natural thyroid or people who have no thyroid problem at all. Well, now, if I took the armor that has the T3 also, does that mean that I'm going to get, uh, you know, make better use of it or I'm uh, going to be... Well, it's exactly the proportion that your own gland uh, secretes. And then the liver, if if your liver is responding to the active T3 secreted by the gland, the liver will go ahead and convert the rest of the T4 to T3. But um, if you take armor thyroid and, and metabolize it perfectly, your blood test is going to show excess above normal T3 because mm -hmm. they've standardized the test to say that normal is uh, what is produced by taking well, if it's going to help me, I might try it. How long does it take to take it before the test will show differently? Um, well, if your um, TSH is is um, in the low normal range, and if your temperature and pulse rate are good, and if you don't have any symptoms, then you're handling it properly. Well, what are the symptoms of having a low thyroid? Uh, cold hands and feet are very common. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, low blood sugar anxiety, uh, fatigue, depression, uh, dry skin, uh, edema, uh, inability to uh, go very long without getting hungry, craving sweets. Mm, no, I don't think I have too much of that. Um, I, uh, so what, what happened is I had had atrial fibrillation, and uh, they discovered that I had a high thyroid, or overactive thyroid, which I'd never had before. I don't know what caused it. It came on, uh, and the only symptom I had was uh, the, the uh, heartbeat, irregular heartbeat. So um, they told me there was basically I could take something called methimazole, which would lower the, the thyroid, but it would make me um, very susceptible to bad infections. And uh, you had diff lots of difficult side effects. The other thing they said I could do was have my thyroid basically... Um, mo uh, most of it 
destroyed by taking a radioactive iodine treatment. And that sounds drastic, but it seemed like, well, if I shrink my thyroid down below normal with this, then that's it, and then all I have to do is take thyroid, and that's not going to have the side effects of the misdemeanor. So I chose to do that, and then, you know, gradually the thyroid, uh, you know, started to shrink, and it seems to have stabilized where I need to add the 88 micrograms, and then I'm okay. What do you think about about, you know, doing that for if you have hyperthyroid, uh, hyperthyroid to do the... Uh... Um, there was a study of people with hyperthyroidism treated by three different kinds of doctors. One did surgery, uh, one did the uh, radioactive iodine to kill the thyroid, and the third group got uh, just the thyroid-suppressing chemical. And uh, the patients on the chemical, uh, most of them after six months, recovered, and uh, the portion, about 30%, that didn't recover in six months, with another six months, uh, they recovered just with the suppressing chemical, and then they went on to have a functioning thyroid afterwards rather than having well, it Well, for me, I already had it, but it didn't totally destroy it. They calibrated it so that it would uh, just be a little bit below normal, and I would still make some thyroid, but I'd have to have it, you know, add some. I just didn't want to take the chance on the chemical because there were so many side effects, whereas once you lower it with the radioactive thing, then that's done. You're no longer radioactive. They say it goes straight to the thyroid gland and, and shrinks it, and it doesn't go anywhere else in your body. So that's what's going on. So now I have to add the thyroid. So uh, you're saying that if I don't have symptoms of hypothyroidism, then I should just stick with what I'm doing and I don't need the armor? Uh, yeah. Uh, the temperature, pulse rate, and symptoms are, are good indicators. Yeah, I don't have cold hands and feet. or You know, I think everything's normal. Um, sometimes I get fatigued, but I think it might be a result of the uh, going through the uh, intense uh, heart uh, thing, you know, because it took a while for that to get balanced. So, um, but now everything seems to be getting better. Well, thank you. I want to give somebody else a chance. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. okay bye. Thank you for your call. All right. We do have a couple of other callers, Dr. Pete. So let's take the next caller. You're on the air? Yes. This is David from Missouri. Hi, David. Um, Dr. Pete, I wanted to ask about uh, what I'm starting to gather from you know, reading most of your nutritional philosophy and then also looking at the East-West Healing Cookbook that you wrote the foreword for. And I've noticed that um, on a lot of the food preparation that they will take the seeds out of, like, cucumbers and tomatoes and, um, you know, you, you always skin the potatoes. And I think I understand why, but I just wanted to understand this a little bit better. I know that we don't want seeds because they have polyunsaturated fats, but you would think that a lot of those seeds would just pass through, but is it because a lot of these things will lodge in the crooks and crannies of the intestine and possibly just sit there and become an irritant, or possibly the bacteria will feed off of that because it's... Uh, it's no, some seeds, some seeds do pass through harmlessly, uh, like uh, cactus pear seeds, uh, they're, they're so tough that they pass through without uh, being a, an irritant. Uh, but uh, tomato seeds are, are so tender that if they get crushed 
by by chewing, they release uh, uh, fairly um, toxic materials, uh, protein uh, oxidizing, and uh, uh, seeds in general are protected for the plant's benefit by uh, toxins that are aimed at whatever predator uh, threatens them. Uh, so many seeds uh, contain toxins that are intended to prevent mammalian enzymes from digesting them. Aha. Uh-huh. So like like a blackberry seed, you know, blackberries, I mean, they seem so good, but those seeds, they seem like they're just going to get stuck in the intestine somewhere. You know, uh, no, they're, they're so hard. Is that uh, is that a no. possibility? Are those going to pass through, or are they going to create that toxic effect? Uh, they pass right through unless you chew them and, and have an allergic reaction. Okay. And so, like, the potato skin, obviously, that is not digestible, so that's going to probably sit in the intestine and uh, feed bacteria, or is or, that going to pass through, too? No, uh, cellulose is a, a very harmless fiber because uh, uh, bacteria generally... I can't break it down. Only a few types of bacteria can attack cellulose. Uh, so it passes through just as bulky fiber. But uh, the, the potato family, like the tomatoes, uh, the whole family in, includes uh, chemicals that are highly allergenic. So if you're allergic to uh, tomatoes, you're likely to have some reaction to chilies, uh, eggplants, and potatoes, too. So you're saying just the whole potato in general or the skin itself? Well, the skin is, has okay. the most allergens. Okay, so it is a good idea to peel that then, more than likely. Yeah. Okay. And then um, the other thing is, you know, I've noticed that you recommend, it seems like, you know, you don't say for sure on this, but you, you usually will say just plain white sugar rather than like the, you know, like if you go in the health food store now, they're always promoting these. Uh, cane organic sugars that aren't refined, so they're not white. They're like brownish colored and different things. I guess the problem with these things that are not more purified is that they have allergens in them or possibly things from the processing of the different substances. Is that? Uh, Yeah. If if you've um, ever uh, tasted blackstrap molasses, sometimes you can taste smoke in it. And uh, they used to burn... Uh, the cane fields uh, to make them easier to harvest and so they would be smoky and then they would boil it down and uh, the molasses would collect minerals uh, a lot of nutritious stuff but also the junk and and smoky material and wow. even with uh, uh, very clean material like uh, maple uh, syrup or um, the Maguey juice, uh, those come out very clean, and when they're cooked, uh, the high temperature, if it's browning the sugar, that's breaking down the sugar itself and uh, producing some highly irritating, possibly toxic uh, materials. So if these different sugars were produced properly, they would be great, but we're kind of playing it safe. By just getting white sugar, because it's probably the purest form of uh, glucose and fructose, right? Yeah, if they could, for example, be uh, concentrated in a vacuum with a moderate temperature, uh, maybe 
something like pasteurization temperature, uh, that uh, would be a very safe way to make sugar uh, without having to wash the brown stuff out of it. So you uh-huh. could... And, and then, so like uh, the fructose that you can buy like in the health food stores, you had mentioned to me in an email one time that, you know, you've just got to make sure that you don't have a reaction to it. I guess what you were indicating there is that how they produce it again is, is potentially a problem. Is that correct? Um, yeah. Uh, it, I think it's all made from cornstarch industrially, and uh, you have to uh, just test it yourself. Some people have a fairly intense, quick reaction allergically to it. Other people do beautifully on it, and I'm not sure if it's the person's difference or the product's difference. And, and if, if you did find a fructose that worked best for you, or if you it worked and you didn't have an allergic reaction, that would be the ideal sugar, right? Yeah. Okay. But um, uh, fruit is really ideal because you get so many other nutrients uh, with the the sugar. Okay. And, you know, just one more question. Since you brought up fruit, like eating grapes that are seedless grapes, is that skin a problem on a grape? Or is it going to stick stick in the intestine and then feed bacteria, or is it usually uh, broken down pretty quickly? One problem with uh, grapes, if you don't wash them very carefully, is that the white bloom on the skin, uh, if, you, if you rub it and polish it, uh, that comes off. It's because uh, yeast grow on the waxy surface of the skin. I've wondered about that because you can almost see it. Uh, yeah, and and so it uh, the fungus growing on the on the skin always has its uh, normal amount of estrogen in it, which uh, could be uh. a drawback. But I, so even if you just chewed it really, really well, it probably still wouldn't help in that aspect, would it? Well, yeah, but uh, a moderate amount of grapes, I don't think that amount of, of irritation is going to okay. worry most people. Okay, well, thank you. Thank, thank you for your call. Okay. Okay, we do have, uh, we've got two or three more people, but we're definitely going to have time for one more, and depending on how, depending on how uh, quick the, uh, the caller is their question or their question is then uh, we might get to some more but let's take the next next caller a very quick uh, addendum to the last call is does cooking deactivate the enzymes in tomato seeds and then we'll get to our next caller yes it deactivates the enzymes but it doesn't uh, destroy the allergens okay next caller you're on the air oh hello Hi. Uh, I'm Yvonne from McKinleyville. Okay. Thank and you I wanted, I, one of my questions was already answered regarding his position on sugar, so we can skip that one. Okay. And I wondered what his position on salt and, um, and fats is. Dr. Each, each one. Salt and fats? Salt and fats. What kind salt. of fat? Yeah, what kind of, what kind of fat were you uh, asking about? At the beginning of the program, you said something about his positions on sugar, salt, Oh, okay. And, uh, right. okay. That. Okay. So I can't remember what you said about yeah. that. We were talking in relation to saturated and polyunsaturated. Dr. Pete is very much a pro advocate of saturated fats, and uh, okay. he, he's very much, uh, very much behind using salt and getting adequate salt in your diet. As a and uh, does he talk about what kind of salt? Well, I know, Dr. Pete, you want to answer? Uh, okay. Yes, uh, clean white salt, like sea salt without additives, is good. Yeah. 
Okay. All right. Yeah, that's the end of me, so maybe somebody else can All have right. a turn. Thank, thank, thank you. Thank you. Call. We do have one more caller, and if the caller wants to keep it short, we should be able to squeeze you in. I'll just go ahead. Hi, I'm calling from Whale Gulch, far, far west of Okay, place. thank uh, you. I, I have a question, but I also want to say to the other callers that uh, what's been recognized about Alzheimer's is that it can come with iron deposits in the brain, and this uh, <laughs> traditional herb from India, turmeric, has been recognized as being able to chelate that iron, like you have curcuminoid receptors. Mm-hmm throughout your body. Curcumin is the active chemical component of turmeric, so you can consume turmeric to help with Alzheimer's. It'll help remove the excess iron deposits, and above that, it also helps rebuild the collagen and removes the other deposits from your joints, too, so it helps with arthritis. Um, And as for the toe fungus, neem is the traditional medicine to use. Neem oil you can use topically. Neem you can take internally. Also, potentially activated charcoal, because it's it's likely that a dude has, like, a bacterial problem in his body and you could consume the activated charcoal but you can use the neem oil directly on the fungus also so and to facilitate the liver you can consume dandelion root it's an excellent liver tonic mm-hmm. dr p what do you think about the uh, iron deposits i know you've always you've mentioned iron in a very dangerous uh, reactive uh, element yeah, yeah. Uh, that fits right into what we've been talking mm-hmm. about, the uh, the stress hormones that, that lead to Alzheimer's disease. Uh, iron is sort of the end point of all of these changes. Uh, nitric oxide and prostaglandins uh, activate enzymes which release and deposit iron in the brain where it then uh, continues amplifying the, the destructive reactions. The functionality of it. Okay, I'm afraid it is almost eight o'clock, so don't want to make want to make sure that um, I give out Dr. Pete's uh, contact details for people who want to find out more about him, and uh, I'll just spend these last couple of minutes thanking Dr. Pete for his time. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Pete. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So, okay, the uh, web address uh, web address of Dr. Pete is uh, Dot com. Uh, he has lots of articles that uh, he's published and uh, all fully referenced uh, scientific journal articles, if you like. Um, so go to his website. He's got a big resource there for information, not just on tonight's top- topic, but lots of information on thyroid, hormones, good fats versus bad fats, salt, sugar, etc. So until the third Friday of next month, uh, my name's Andrew Murray. Uh, we can be contacted on one eight 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 wbm herb for any questions Monday through Friday. Uh, next month will be in September, folks, and uh, heading towards the fall. Uh, hope, the, uh, hope the weather's going to be good where you are. Okay, till next month. Support for KMUD comes in part from Golden Dragon Medicinal Syrup. An herbal elixir made without heat or ice, Golden Dragon Medicinal Syrup is edible, topical, cosmetic, and water-soluble. Information is available at goldendragonmedicinalsyrup at gmail.com. This is Redwood Community Radio, KMUD Garberville, KMUE Eureka Arcata, KLAI Laytonville, K258BQ Shelter Cove and on the web at kmud.org. It is 759, 81 degrees outside our Redway studios. We have a special treat. Little Rock is sitting in, but you will get just as funked up as you normally do. 
So enjoy. Remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive.